0: Right. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Monday, March 22nd. Today back in the day on March 22nd, 1913, Tom McCall was born. A governor, a secretary of state and journalist, Tom McCall had a monumental influence on modern life in Oregon. As a Republican, McCall took an unusual approach balancing economic growth with progressive environmental protections. After growing up on a ranch near Prineville, McCall graduated from the University of Oregon in 1936 with a degree in journalism. He worked as a reporter for the Oregonian as well as a radio and TV news announcer for KGW. McCall won Secretary of State in 1964 and the governorship just two years later. His two most famous achievements are the 1967 Beach Bill and the 1971 Bottle Bill. The Beach Bill established public ownership of the state's coast, which was under threat of private development. The Bottle Bill was America's first mandatory container deposit law, incentivizing more recycling. also oversaw the creation of the Department of Environmental Quality. McCall opposed unrestricted corporate development and the slow encroachment of suburban sprawl. His commitment to sustainable land use planning and environmental preservation endures to this day. And today, back in the day on March 22, 1967, Muhammad Ali defended his heavyweight title against Zora Foley. Ali ended the match in the seventh round with a knockout. It would be his last match until October 1970. That's because Ali was stripped of his title and banned from boxing due to his refusal to be drafted into the Vietnam War. That meant that Ali didn't fight from ages 25 to 29, some of the prime years in a boxer's life. In that time, Ali became a fierce advocate for black pride and racial justice. And he was an outspoken opponent of American imperialism. For today's episode, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines And then we have Jonathan Maas from Bike Portland. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. An outside agency will investigate the Portland Police Bureau over Commissioner Joanne Hardesty's name leak. According to Hardesty and Mayor Ted Wheeler, an independent group has begun examining the circumstances surrounding the leak of a false accusation against Hardesty – Earlier this month, Hardesty was implicated in a hit-and-run incident, despite having no connection to the crime. The victim of the hit-and-run told 911 operators that she was sure the perpetrator was Hardesty. It was not. Hardesty was cleared the same day, but an unknown person told the press that Hardesty was a suspect. The group will investigate how Hardesty's name was leaked to the press and conservative activists. In a press conference earlier this month, Hardesty said, quote, As someone who's been working on police accountability for 32 years, I can tell you that this is a normal tactic used to discredit people who want to put accountability into our police force. Last week, the president of the Portland Police Association, Brian Huntsinger, announced his resignation from the union due to, quote, a serious isolated mistake related to the police bureau's investigation into the alleged hit and run by Commissioner Hardesty. The police union is currently in the middle of contract negotiations with the city. High on their list of priorities is blocking the voter approved independent oversight board. Wheeler and Hardesty also announced that there would be a broader investigation into racial and political bias within the Portland Police Bureau. The scope and investigator assigned to this investigation has not yet been determined. And now, It's time for your daily dose of data. On Sunday, the state reported 224 new cases of the novel coronavirus. There was one new death. 112 Oregonians are currently hospitalized with the disease. The state projects that 80% of Oregon seniors will be vaccinated by March 31st. Already more than half of Oregonians over the age of 65 have been fully vaccinated. New state projections put that group at 80% by the end of the month. The state is counting on a promised supply of vaccines from the federal government. Governor Brown says that as long as those supplies come through, she will move up the timeline for eligibility. Starting on March 29th, people who are 45 or older with underlying conditions will be eligible for the jab. On April 19th, any adult with underlying conditions will become eligible. Under this new timeline, the Oregon Health Authority believes that much of the state will already be vaccinated by the time the door is open to everyone on May 1st. The governor has faced criticism for her unwillingness to move grocery store workers up in the line, but she argued that by vaccinating those with underlying conditions, we would achieve the same goal. In a statement, Brown said, quote, We look forward to starting vaccinations for Oregonians with underlying health conditions. Not only will this next phase reach vulnerable people, but it also prioritizes equity as communities of color are more likely to have several of these health conditions, such as diabetes or sickle cell disease. Unemployed Oregonians will start receiving an extra $300 a week this week. The bonus payments passed in the $1.9 trillion COVID package start this week. People who are already getting unemployment should not see any lapse in their coverage. For some who have run out of benefits, they may need to reapply, and there may be a small delay in payments. The federal bill will also provide a large tax break for everyone who received unemployment benefits in 2020. The first $10,200 of those benefits have been declared tax-exempt, so basically free money. This may cause some revenue shortages in the state. Officials estimate that Oregon could take a $200 to $250 million hit. Currently, the IRS is asking affected taxpayers to wait for additional guidance before filing their taxes or filing an amended return. Hundreds gathered in downtown Portland this weekend in support of Asian Americans. Several hundred people gathered near the Portland waterfront on Saturday to remember the lives of the six Asian American women killed last week in Atlanta. The vigil was live streamed along with similar events in at least 20 other American cities, including Seattle. People wanted to call attention to the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans since the start of the pandemic. Millions of Americans have been demonstrating their solidarity with Asian Americans since the deadly shooting. The perpetrator alleged his firing spree was not racially motivated, but due to a sex addiction. Officials are still deciding whether to classify the shooting as a hate crime. The events in Atlanta have drawn wider attention to the myriad of crimes that have been perpetrated against Asian Americans, including right here in Portland, Over the last year, many businesses in Portland's Jade District have been vandalized, and some Asian American Portlanders have been assaulted. These attacks seem to be the result of a false narrative spread by the far right that Asians are responsible for the pandemic. The Ducks advanced in the NCAA tournament without even playing a game. New rules govern March Madness this year, and the Ducks never set foot on the court before moving on to round two. This bizarre bit of madness happened because the Ducks were slated to play VCU in round one, but at least three of the players on the opposing team tested positive this week for COVID-19. This year, because of the pandemic, medical advisory boards have the authority to call off a game. In this case, Indiana's Marion County health officials decided the game was too much of a risk, and they handed the game to Oregon. Oregon will go on to play the winner of the game between Iowa and and grand canyon today and finally some good news an oregon teen is gearing up to be the first female competitor in the professional bull riders elite circuit 14 year old nasia knight from arlington oregon has been practicing rodeo events since she was just three years old rodeo is a big deal across oregon and women have traditionally participated in horseback events Neja was more interested in the events her brother and father were competing in, bull riding. Since her early days mutton busting, Neja has won national recognition for being the first girl to ride in the mini bull rider circuit. She was also the first female to ride a bull in Madison Square Garden earlier this year, where she beat all of her competition in the third round. Neja says that most of her male peers are welcoming, but that, quote, Sometimes they'll be like, so I can't get beat by a girl. And then she goes on to say, but you know, you just got to show them who's boss. Despite the riskiness of the sport, Neja has her hopes on becoming the best in the world, a goal which is very attainable for her. Neja is hoping to compete in the Professional Bull Riders Global Cup. Neja is an indigenous Paiute and a member of the Klamath Tribes. She explains that quote there's two american teams team eagles and then team wolves which is the natives would we'll be part of team wolves because i am native i think that would be so cool and that's today's quick six local rundown x-ray up next we'll hear from jonathan maz the publisher and editor in chief of bikeportland.org this month he speaks with host Christine Alexander about developments in Portland's cycling infrastructure, traffic combing, and the prospective Earl Blumenauer Bridge. Here are Jonathan and Christine.
1: Portland has been called one of the most bicycle-friendly cities in America. Perhaps no one is more familiar with the cycling infrastructure of our city than Jonathan Maas. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief of BikePortland.org, was founded in July 2005. It's an independent outlet covering transportation and cycling issues in the Portland metro area. So transportation seems to be our theme this morning. He joins us uh, to discuss the rapidly fluctuating state of Portland's cycling community in the wake of a tragic hit and run that happened in January and what he sees in the future. Good morning, Jonathan. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, nice to be here. Thanks.
1: You're welcome. Well, let's get the sad news out of the way first or the sad discussion. Uh, It's been nearly two months since the tragic incident on January 25th involving a motorist intentionally ramming 10 pedestrians, including two cyclists, in the Buckman neighborhood. How has your understanding and interpretation of this event changed since uh, we last had you on X-Ray FM?
2: Right. Well, I think it's lent itself to just sort of a sort of continued examination of where we are as a city, especially as a city that's sort of looking around and looking for leadership, uh, both from sort of the advocacy community and also from City Hall and from the City of Portland building and to sort of ask ourselves, you know, how much progress are we really making around street safety? And as some listeners might know, you know, we, we made this big proclamation to be a vision zero city where we have no traffic deaths in the next few years, and we've had record deaths. Uh, So it's really looking around and saying, you know, are we acting boldly enough? Uh, Is there enough urgency from the bureaucracy to to do the hard things it's going to take to really, uh, you know, stem the tide of dangerous driving and and, uh, poorly designed streets that are just woefully outdated and, and, and a lot of times encourage the kind of violent behaviors that we're seeing from some drivers?
1: Yeah, that's frightening, the the violent behavior, the statistics during the pandemic and the, the fact that people are speeding a lot more, and that puts cyclists and pedestrians in danger, even if it's not intentional, you know.
2: Right, and we, we recently reached out to our audience and asked how people's cycling has been impacted by the last year of, of the COVID pandemic, and one of the really interesting takeaways that I heard from a lot of different readers was, when they were commuting on their bike uh, and moving around the city uh, on bicycles before the pandemic, uh, they they felt some safety because there were other people in the bike lanes with them, especially, I think, you know, for for people commuting to work on some of the major routes. And they really enjoyed that sort of sense of, of, uh, you know, safety in numbers, let's say. And now after the, you know, since the pandemic with the, the traffic being so much less, People just are feeling even more safe just for little things like that. So the fact that they, they aren't surrounded by as many bicycle riders uh, is something that's adding to people's anxiety. Uh, and, you know, the pandemic has just accentuated what we've always known about street, some, some street designs, which is if you don't make them narrow enough, if, if they don't have enough traffic calming on, uh, devices on them, right? If the speed limits are too high, uh, if there's no way to sort of enforce people's behavior, uh, you know, people can can drive in a dangerous way. So mm. uh, it's a, a couple different factors are leading into that, but we've got to get to where we can get more people out on the street and uh, roads that are designed more safely.
1: What is traffic combing?
2: Right, uh, traffic calming. I mean, calming. Just, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so,
1: I thought it was combing <laughs> like a, a hair comb. I was like, what is that?
2: <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, you know, and that. And, calming. And that's something that, yeah. yeah. And, that's something that we talked about definitely after the, the tragic events in January down at Buckman neighborhood is just think about, you know, if there are more speed bumps, if there are more uh, curby, you know, curbs that come out into the road, if there's more uh, diverters, you know, concrete things in the street that encourage drivers to take bigger streets or, or fewer sort of arterial streets and stay off uh, smaller neighborhood streets where we like to prioritize uh, walkers and bikers, if there are more of those things in the streets, um, the streets would be much safer and, and fewer people would, would have to drive everywhere. We can get more people to walk to the bus and, mm. to, and to walk and bike. And there was just a big report from Oregon Walks, a, a local nonprofit, that looked really closely at, at, at fatalities over three years from 2017 to 2019. And that's one of the big things they found is that a majority of the of the fatal crashes after they analyzed all the police reports uh, were, were on streets that don't have uh, any kind of traffic calming measures especially in in east portland where we have a, a preponderance of uh, wide fast streets that really just encourage uh, bad driving behavior
1: mm. my guest is jonathan Moss with bikeportland.org so a lot of changes are being made to portland's cycling infrastructure some are more positive than others what developments um or changes do you anticipate this year
2: well, I think the, the most exciting things uh, are happening uh, far out East Portland. Uh, the city of Portland is doing quite a few projects out there. Well where they're really looking to uh, change some of what they call these high crash corridors, which are, are street sections that have a, have a higher than average uh, rate of crashes and injuries. They're, they're looking to uh, add bike lanes on some of those uh, and to kind of like uh, you know change the lane configurations. Uh, streets like uh, Gleason uh, are having a big project on them. 148. There's there's quite a few out there. Uh, and another thing I'm really looking forward to uh, for the central city is the development of actually two new bridges over uh, over interstates in the central city. One on Seventh Avenue that will connect Central East Side over to the Lloyd. Uh, so that's the what they're calling the Earl Blumenauer Bridge. It's going to be a car-free <laughs> <laughs> car- bridge. <laughs>
1: The Earl Blumenauer Bridge, I love it. You know, a lot of people don't know that Earl always wore a bike pin. I've got one of his, and he would hand them out, little, you know, it was like a line drawing of a bike. It was a really cute pin, usually in some fluorescent color. Earl's always been an advocate for cyclists.
2: He has, and now he'll have a bridge he can look at (laughs) and actually see from his office. (gasps) You're kidding. No, you can you can actually be able to see it. That will be pretty wild. That is I think awesome. a lot of people will call it the Seventh Avenue Bridge, but we'll see we'll see how that goes. So that's the
1: bloomy, and, and... the bloomy, the bloomy okay. bridge. All right,
2: I'm, I'm all for nicknames. That's good. And then <laughs> in, in, uh, in the same time, and actually a little further ahead, that's already been installed and is going to open in just a few months is a, a new bridge over I 405 that will connect uh, northwest, you know, two parts of Northwest Portland. So sort of on on Northwest Flanders, there's going to be a new bridge. Uh, from you know right over the right over the four or five, so major connection. It's going to uh, allow people to not have to uh, walk and bike on Everett and Gleason. And the great thing about the, the new Flanders Crossing Bridge, which again is already in place, and the city of Portland says it's going to be open for riding by May of this year, wow. uh, is that that bridge is actually the linchpin in a larger uh, bikeway project, which has uh, been promised. Uh, for, for over a decade, but it's going to connect the Waterfront Park on, on Fl- via Flanders all the way to Northwest 24th. So that's going to be a really important uh, link in the bicycle network that's going to provide, you know, a much safer uh, alternative to some of those other streets. And just uh, a couple days ago, the city of Portland uh, plunked down these really large concrete planters on Flanders at the North Park blocks as part of this project. So uh, and what those are going to do is just prevent people from driving uh, on Flanders through that one block of the park blocks. And there's several other locations where they're going to prevent people from turning on to Flanders. So the idea in, in, in a year from now, let's say, yeah. or six, seven months from now, Flanders uh, all the way from Waterfront all the way up to Northwest 24th is going to be calm, uh, low stress and family friendly is how the. City of Portland likes to refer to these streets, so we'll see how that goes, but there's a lot of changes coming to Flanders, and that's, that's, that's going to be uh, just wonderful.
1: That's big. That's really big, all the way from the waterfront up to 24th, 23rd area, that, right. I mean, that big shopping area. That's really substantial. I think that's a victory, Jonathan.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and Another big thing is how the city is looking to make some of the permanent, I'm sorry, some of the temporary things they did around the COVID pandemic. They're looking to make those more permanent, so that's potentially very exciting, depending on on how bold they end up being. But we're already hearing from them that they want to make, you know, some of those uh, what they're calling their slow streets, right? So they put up barricades. People have probably seen the signs and barricades on some of the neighborhood streets that just remind drivers that they might want to go in a different street or or definitely go slowly because they expect people to be walking and biking. You know, they put those in last April to encourage sort of safe social distance walking and biking on these streets and now they're looking to go back and add add concrete, uh, make those more resilient and permanent. Likewise with all the uh, business and outdoor dining plazas that they put in over the summer. They've extended that program now through late this year. Uh, And I have a feeling, you know, once you kind of make streets for people uh, and make them more fun and give people space outside on this great, you know, on these public areas that we have, uh, people don't necessarily like to give that up. So uh, it was, it, you know, that could be a real big silver lining uh, from some of the COVID measures that they took.
1: Well, uh, that that all sounds great. You mentioned something earlier, and I wanted to go back to it and ask you, you said bad bike lanes. And I'm what what is a bad bike lane? And what is a good bike lane? <laughs> well, Essentially, uh, you know, a lot of the bike lanes
2: in Portland were installed in the 90s, let's say, the late 90s, right? So just a strip of paint, essentially, right. is really not that fun. Not, it's, it's it's a, it's a high-stress place, right? Especially like we talked about before, is, um, you know, cars have gotten bigger, cars have gotten faster. People have so much anxiety and stress and anger, and we're seeing cars used as weapons. And it's very disconcerting uh, if you're out there with just your flesh and bones on a bicycle or even on a sidewalk, so, a bad bike lane is one that doesn't have any uh, physical protection, preferably uh, concrete separation from uh, other road users. Uh, it's something that the city of Portland has sort of been promising and saying that that's a standard that they want to reach for all their bike lanes. They have not been uh, acting fast enough to get those put in. Uh, there's an awful lot of excuses they can use to just use paint. And again, paint is not protection when we're talking about. A bike network. And, you know, when you introduced me on the show here, talking about Portland being America's best bike city, well, a lot of the metric that goes into that are just miles of striped, you know, paint on the ground. And those just don't suffice anymore, uh. especially when we're trying to have sort of what we call all ages biking network. So the idea that people from eight years old to 80 years old can feel like they can uh, take a bike uh, on a Portland street, you know, grab a bike town and, and get to the bus. or or, or take a bike to the store, those kind of things. A striped bike lane is a bad bike lane because it's not gonna move the needle, it's not gonna compete with someone's sense of safety they get when they hop in their car, right? So if we make those protected with concrete or put planters up, or people are probably seeing those reflective wands that that the city likes to use because they're cheap, although I don't like necessarily the way those look. Um, You know, some sort of physical protection to really create a network. Hmm. Uh, so that people can, from point A to point B, from their door to their destination, can feel like they're safe and feel like, you know, uh, people driving cars aren't going aren't gonna to just, you know, move over into their space.
1: Mm-hmm, get that more visible and more protected. We've been talking to Jonathan Moss He is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of BikePortland.org. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an update on uh, the Portland cycling scene. We appreciate it.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Jonathan and Bike Portland for their local news coverage and for joining The Local. Also, thanks to lead writers for today's episode, Brian Miller and Julia Oppenheimer. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. It's going to be a special day. X-Ray.